This week on Behind the Lens, there's a crowded field of candidates running for the seven open Orleans Parish school board seats. We'll look at the money behind the race. The chair of the New Orleans Civil Service Commission was quietly removed from her post earlier this month after the mayor lobbied for her replacement. That move is now drawing scrutiny. The more controversial practices of retiring District Attorney Leon Canazero continue to be an issue in the race for his replacement. All the candidates in the race are disavowing the use of material witness warrants for crime victims, but records show some have used them. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hi, Nick. Okay. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado is joining us. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, you're up first. The Orleans Parish School Board elections are coming up November 3rd, along with several other races. There are 21 candidates competing for seven district seats. You're profiling each district with a focus on campaign finance. What have you found digging into the candidates? Sure. So we have a a pretty crowded field, which has um, not been true of the last several elections. Um, I think if you want to break it down very simply, uh, we generally have kind of um, the education reform candidates. Then we have some other candidates who are more interested in bringing back neighborhood schools um, and neighborhood-based schools versus kind of the open enrollment system we see in the city right now. Um, But overall, in regards to campaign finance, what we've seen is... um, I think the more reform-backed candidates have drawn a lot more money, um, and they seem to have more organized support. What's standing out about major contributors? Are there some links? Yeah, so um, we've seen the biggest contributor we've seen so far is from Democrats for Education Reform, and they've contributed to a number of candidates um, totaling $15,000 in this race. Uh, The largest individual contributor is Stephen Rosenthal, um, and he is very involved in the education reform movement. He sat on several charter boards. Um, you know, he also said he's just, you know, he, he's involved because he wants to see equity and he wants um, to see, you know, better things for kids in schools, uh, which is, you know, basically the party line of anyone who's running for school board is that they want, want to see better things for children. How is this comparing the activity for the pro-reform folks to the non reform folks as far as donations? The pro-reform folks seem to have a, a little bit more organized support in terms of organizations and you see, you're going to see a lot of the same donors popping up um, in their campaign finance reports. And then when you take a look at the uh, kind of the other camp who's not necessarily um, anti-reform but you know more neighborhood schools based in those types of um, interests you see a, a wider variety of donors, I think, in those campaigns. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you see, uh, I think with those campaigns, you see fewer kind of institutional donors. Uh, like, uh, uh, you know, for example, the, they're, they're, I, I guess the, the institutional um, force on the, you know, what, what you could call anti-reform side or whatever, the, the more charter skeptical side would be the teachers' unions. Um, and uh, the, uh, the New Orleans Teachers Union, um, as far as we could tell from looking through campaign finance records, it had a, a, a PAC, a political action committee, 
and that PAC has not been active in about two years. Uh, the larger, the statewide um, teachers union PAC, uh, the uh, Louisiana Federation of Teachers PAC, which is sort of the, the uh, statewide parent for the, for the New Orleans Union, um, is uh, they, they have a PAC that's active, they're taking contributions, um, most of which is coming from the, a, the American Federation of Teachers Met, uh, National Union. Uh, but they're not spending right now. Um, they, uh, they had something like $260,000 in the bank, and uh, all of their spending in this election cycle has been sort of on, um, you know, things like, uh, like fees for, you know, uh, for ethics board registration and stuff like that, sort of administrative costs, not political spending. Hmm. In your first answer, you mentioned that it's it's unlike the previous election in that there's so much interest there's so much so many uh, people vying for that let me try it again in the previous election in 2016 four of the seven open seats went unopposed why do you think the increase this year why are why is there so much activity i think in the election cycles um after after hurricane katrina there was kind of a lot of like you know, getting your getting our feet under us and figuring out what's going on, and also the the reform movement wasn't so. I don't want to say so present, but it wasn't a. It wasn't so present, and b. It wasn't really something that the Orleans Parish School Board members could do anything about because it was happening at the state level. And so, what has happened in the last four years is that the recovery dis, school district charter schools, um, the ones that were taken over by the state and converted into charters, have actually come back under Orleans Parish School Board leadership. And that happened in 2018. So what you see, the difference between 2016 and 2020 is you see this um, a much larger scalability to affect change in the community. And then you've also seen, you know, as these last 15 or so years have uh, played out in the reform movement in schools, um, you know, people are, people are starting to organize a little bit better around issues that concern them when it comes to charter schools. Uh, whether it's special education or how, you know, um, teachers are working on one-year contracts or any other concerns they might be having. I think that's been mobilizing a lot of people. I think Marta hit on one of the, one of the things that's probably, that's probably motivating more people to, uh, to run this year, which is, which is just this governance issue. In 2016, most of the schools, and correct me if I'm wrong, Marta, most of the schools in the city were still run by the recovery school district, which was a state state run district, um, kind of overseen by the state uh, board of elementary and secondary education and the Louisiana Department of Education. Now all the schools are back under you know local, not control but local oversight. Um, so uh, there there's uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have a, a, a bigger impact as a board as a school board member now than you would have four or five years ago. Okay. This is pure speculation that I'm asking you on your part to do. Uh, do you think that any of the activity regarding the interest in the governance has to do with the response to COVID? I don't think so much. I, there is one candidate, um, Owen Parker, who said he, he got involved in the race because of the way that his children responded to uh, the political movements after the George Floyd killing. Mm. Um, so I haven't heard it. I didn't hear anything about COVID. I think everyone, every candidate I spoke with basically realizes that that is one of the greatest challenges that the board is going to face over the next couple of years, especially in terms of financial stability. Um, but that was, I wouldn't say that was a motivating or a main motivating factor for anyone um, that I spoke with. 
So the the one that you referred to about the George Floyd killing and his um, his kids wanted him to run because of the democratic process and and being able to you know do something, Dad, or explain that a yeah, little they further. Did, they had had a conversation about um, values that they held in their household, and he said his daughter got really upset, um, acknowledging that you know his, the majority of her classmates are black and brown, and that that really touched him and that that motivated him to move or to run. Uh, yesterday on Wednesday, we published uh, this this sort of uh, the sort of main overriding story, which dealt with a lot with big contributors, uh, particularly Democrats for education reform, and uh, we published a, a profile on districts one and two, which are sort of on the both sort of located on the east side of the city, sort of from Gentilly through New Orleans East. And uh, today we'll be publishing districts three and four, and on Friday, by the time this goes to this 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 podcast gets published, we'll publish five, uh, districts five, six, and seven. Each of these uh, district profiles includes candidate interviews to the extent that we've been able to get in touch with these candidates, as well as a uh, uh, searchable data on campaign contributions. Uh, I also encourage people to read the first story that is not a, a district profile, um, because uh, you know what we found when we looked into campaign finance here is it goes is that there is a part of this that goes beyond contributions to candidates. Democrats for Education Reform is affiliated, and by affiliated I mean run by the exact same people as another national group called Education. What is it? Education Reform Now. Uh, Education Reform Now has been funding Democrats for education reform in these races. They gave them $24,000. They've also, education reform now, been doing their own independent expenditures, you know, sort of outside spending, supporting some of these school board candidates. And they have, as of the last ca- their last campaign finance report, they had spent about $60,000 um, which is, you know, more than Democrats for education reform have contributed. It's a tremendous public service that you're doing. So thank you so much, Marta and Charles, for this reporting. It's really important on the eve of these elections. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi. I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Michael, the city of New Orleans is facing massive budget crisis. That means likely personnel cuts, which means the New Orleans Civil Service Commission will be involved. Mayor Cantrell recently worked behind the scenes to get her favorite candidate installed on the commission, which is supposed to be apolitical. And the city council may have broken state sunshine laws when they voted to approve that nomination. Who is the Civil Service Commission? What do they do and why is it important? 
one oversimplified way to, to think about the Civil Service Commission and the Civil Service Division um, is like the HR department for city employees. Um, the city, you know, besides doing all the things we know it for, like collecting taxes and, um, you know, all those government functions, it's also a, a major employer in the city, you know, employing somewhere around 4,600 employees. That's not exact, but somewhere in that range. And so the Civil Service Commission and the Civil Service Division, they, they rule on personnel decisions. So if you want to add a new position, if you need a new accountant for the Department of Finance, you would, you know, try to create the position through the Civil Service Commission. Um, it's also the place that employees can appeal decisions that have been made about their employment, whether they've been fired or demoted or um, think they should have deserved a raise. So um, it's kind of that that forum um, that, that decides on personnel issues um, for the city's rather large workforce. Explain what the Civil Service Commission is and how it is populated. Yeah, so, so the, the Civil Service Commission, so, so just to be clear, there's a Civil Service d- Division, which is you know, staffed employees, and then the governing body of that is the Civil Service Commission. And that's made up of five people. They're all appointed by the city council, but four of them are appointed from, a, from lists created by local university presidents. Um, and that fifth seat um, is appointed by the city council from um, a list created by city employees. So the, 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 the seat we're dealing with here is the Dillard University seat. That has been held um, for years by Michelle Craig, who for the past five years has served as the chair of the commission as well. And what we know is that she was interested in, in continuing in that role. Um, she had the support of, of the director of the civil service um, division, but she was not ultimately appointed. Instead, um, the, uh, a woman named Ruth White Davis was appointed. She's um, ha- had a pretty long career um, in the Department of Veterans Affairs. She does client services within kind of our local offshoot of the federal Department of Veterans Affairs. But um, yeah, that's who's been appointed. Um, and now she will be, is expected to be taking Michelle Craig's seat. And why did Cantrell favor her? It's interesting because through our reporting, we didn't see any evidence and we didn't get any answers from the mayor for exactly why they wanted Ruth White Davis. Um, what we heard more about was dissatisfaction with how the Civil Service Commission was running as a whole. And what were the issues? At a very basic level, the Civil Service, the, uh, the Civil Service Commission makes a lot of decisions um, having to do with things like employee discipline, furloughs, layoffs, promotions, demotions, all that sort of stuff. So in a lot of cases, there's sort of the, it, it, it's it's basically um, it is both a policymaking and 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 adjudicatory board. The communications from the mayor suggested that in its uh, adjudicatory capacity, it was ruling basically with employees and against the city uh, more often than she would like. One key issue seems to be that about a year ago, um, the Civil Service Division hired um, a new executive council, um, someone who had previously represented the local firefighters union here. Also on the commission, one of the five commissioners, the the seat that's um, nominated by employees, that's held by a member of the the firefighters unions as well. So there's indications that they thought there was an overrepresentation, at least of this one union, Hmm. um, and that they were a little 
Um, you know, th there was one line basically that, you know, the, the commission and Craig in particular had become hesitant to deny employee appeals. Um, so again, talking about that adjudicatory function, um, you know, it, it is interesting though, because if you look at Michelle, you know, what we're talking here about, you know, whether there are, are too many labor interests um, on the commission or not, but it, it's important to note, I think that Michelle Craig, her history, she's an attorney um, specializing in employment and labor law. But if you look at her past, she is really mostly, you know, her business is really mostly representing, you know, employers and businesses and helping them stay in line with employment laws. Um, in fact, she's, def you know, she's defended companies against unions in the past before as well. So, uh, and, 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 and on the other side, there's nothing, you know, I, I guess that's the overall calculus. It seems to be the overall motivation. But when we're just looking at Ruth White Davis and Michelle Craig, it's not like that dynamic is super clear just between those two. No, but the optics, I guess, are that the, that the chessboard is being set up to favor what may be huge layoffs in the future to favor right. the city from from adverse exactly litigation. And, and, and Cantrell in her letter, so she she actively lobbied to the city council um, for Ruth White Davis to take over. And in her letter, um, you know, she warns that with the current commission under Michelle Craig's leadership, you know, there was this risk that their decisions were going to create, quote, unfunded mandates, unquote. So the, the subtext there seems to be that if certain personnel cuts aren't approved, um, it's going to put the city in this, you know, financially untenable position. Um, so that was kind of the subtext of her reaching out to the city council. Yeah, and I would just I would just add that um, you know this issue of this issue of union interests on the civil service commission. Uh, you know, I, I I I think that's that there's a chance that that's being offered sort of as 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 sort of as sort of an excuse. Look, the mayor the mayor has to deal with all sorts of outside boards and commissions. Um, some of which are appointed by the mayor herself, some of which are appointed or nominated by, by other bodies, such as this case. And the mayor is always going to have an interest um, in having people on these boards and commissions who are going to vote the, the, the way that she wants them to vote. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, the union thing, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't completely buy that. Um, and also not to mention that, that there, there are not a lot of there's not a lot of union activity to speak of in the city. Um, you know, the, it, you'll note that both of these people that that the mayor complained about uh, were connected to the exact same union. The reason being that there's really only one city employees union, the firefighters union. The police have associations that have legal representation, but no no bargaining power. Um, and city hall city hall employees don't have anything. Um, so I, there are various employees associations, you know, some of which have over, over the years referred to themselves, um, as union. Um, and, and, you know, some of which, some of which are, are union locals, but they don't really have, and they don't really have full, full negotiating power the way the firefighters union does or the way the unions in other cities do. So, you know, this idea that there's a whole, there's a, you know, some concentrated union power, um, you know, strikes me as, as unrealistic. All of this may have may have happened uh, outside of the framework of a of a what what should have been an, a publicly noticed meeting. Yeah. So so 
basically what what happened is um so, so usually like we talked about the, these university presidents will um send in a list of three names to the city council um for them to choose from um and and historically the order has been a, a priority order right so the the first person you put is the top um and so on um in the past as long as those as long as those nominees um, send in a, a questionnaire that they have to, to fill out before they can be approved. As long as they send that in, usually um, you see motions for all of their appointments at the city council. And they'll talk or kind of determine each, you know, candidate independently. And that will at least show up, you know, usually on a council agenda. In this case, there's only one motion that ever shows up on any city council agenda, and that's just for Ruth White Davis which is strange also because in, in, in the nomination letter that they were using, um, she was listed as the second nominee. And so the question becomes, how is this determination made? And of course, there's the Louisiana Open Meetings Law, um, which gives us, all residents, um, the right to observe um, um, deliberations by public bodies. So, you know, if there was a behind the scenes conversation here where they decided on Ruth White Davis, um, whether because Cantrell was lobbying or because they thought she was the best candidate, whatever that is, um, it should have happened in a public forum. Now, we have an email where the personnel director for the Civil Service Division, Division, Lisa Hudson, reached out to someone at City Council and basically asked what happened here. You know, how was Michelle Craig, the sitting chair of the Civil Service Commission, how was she not even considered? And basically what, she's, what he said is that you know, his exact words were that the council member had been able to, quote, reach a consensus among themselves, unquote, regarding the preferred nominee. Now, I'll say that we followed up with the city council. Um, they disagree with the interpretation that this would be an open meetings law violation. They didn't kind of explain that further. So I'm still unclear of that position. Um, but they're saying this wasn't a public meetings law. However, it it seems that there was a determination made at some point that that didn't happen in public. And, and I'll say that the open meetings law prohibits a couple things. So one thing would be, you know, it prohibits a quorum of the city council. So a majority of the city council from meeting behind closed doors and talking about a, a, an issue that they're deliberating on or even making a decision. But there's also something called a walking quorum. And, and basically that's, that's not allowed in order to kind of close loopholes that would allow public bodies to make decisions behind closed doors without technically meeting in a physical quorum. So that can come in a couple different forms. So if you have, you know, one person, if you're meeting and you don't have a quorum and you want to bring someone else in and you ask someone else to get up and leave so that that other person can come in, right? In that case, you're strategically moving around people in order to avoid hitting that quorum. Um, another form this can take, if, if you email all the council members and, and you pull them and you say, how do you want to vote on this? Um, that's also not allowed. So th there's the strict, you're not allowed to you know, vote in a quorum behind closed doors. And then there's you know, rules to prevent them from trying to skirt that. Um, so we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if a quorum was ever held. We don't know what, what emails were sent. But at some point, um, that decision was made and we don't know when or how. Uh, what happens now with Michelle Craig? She so Michelle Craig's term on the commission has expired. So now the commission will eventually um, actually introduce Ruth White Davis onto the board as the fifth commissioner.
So there's some questions about that, though, right? Um, is 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 that actually is that actually on an agenda for an upcoming meeting? Yeah, it's a good. So there was this argument. So right before, um, so we had talked about all the context here is that you know the the, the we're we're looking at major budget shortfalls, um, and that's involved you know going to mean a lot of personnel cuts. So that already started. So Cantrell's first per, big personnel cut was um, a a furlough um, for all city employees through uh, the end of the year furlough for all city employees in order to make those furloughs happen she had to have the civil service commission waive certain certain noticing requirements right um, so she went to the C civil service commission and right before that meeting Cantrell administration officials had emailed um, the, the civil service um, department to say hey we'd like you to add an agenda item we would like Ruth White Davis to be added to the board in time then there was some back and forth over whether currently over video conference, current law and the governor's orders and all these legal mechanisms together, whether that would allow them to actually appoint Ruth White Davis. And, and like Charles said, it didn't happen at that meeting. And it's I, I haven't seen it on an agenda. Um, I, I think the Cantrell administration's argument was that under that interpretation, they won't be able to add any commissioners, um, you know, until after this pandemic, so that they had to find a way around it. But mm. I don't know what the current status of that is. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Nick, last week, you said a candidate running for district attorney, Arthur Hunter, had previously signed off on a material witness warrant for a crime victim. And there may have been other DA candidates who'd done the same thing, though everyone is publicly disavowing all the practices of Canizero that have become really controversial. What have you found? Yeah, so since we talked last time, um, we uncovered two material witness warrants that were signed by, by Kiva Landrum that were for crime victims. Um, they were for victims of aggravated battery. There were two male victims. There's no evidence that those two victims that, that we saw uh, were actually put into jail, um, but it certainly is at odds with, with some of her public statements on the issue. Okay. And she herself, it turns out, has conflated the idea of material witness warrants with fake subpoenas too, right? Yeah, I mean, that that's part of the issue is that... Is that there, the language around these things have not has not been very clear. So, and, and Judge Landrum, when I talked to her for this story and I brought these two warrants to her, basically said that everyone else was was confusing the issue and that in fact she had been quite consistent in, in what she was saying. Um, so there are a few issues. The most basic one is that you can sign off on a material witness warrant for a witness who is not a victim of a crime you can sign up on a material witness warrant for a victim who also could be considered a witness. And then, you know, the, the real kind of public outcry around this issue was specifically around victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. Right. Um, and that has gotten the state legislature has, has passed laws that, that limit the circumstances uh, specifically in relation to, to domestic violence and sexual assault. So, so the discussion, even within the material witness warrant issue, the candidates have not been particularly specific um, when talking about what they signed off on and, and who, for who specifically. But I think that if you go back and look at uh, the statements of, of uh, Judge Landrum and of Judge Hunter, 
Um, they certainly said things to indicate that they had never signed off on uh, material witness warrants for victims of crimes, and we know now that that is not the case. Right. But going forward, everyone's kind of tripping over themselves to pledge no future material witness warrants ever again. Well, that is not exactly the case. Okay. Um, both Jason Williams and Arthur Hunter have pledged not to sign off on material witness warrants for crime victims, but... Kiva Landrum, and this is in a, an ACLU survey that just came out um, uh, this week, and she basically kept kept the option open. Um, she said that that if it was in the interest of public safety, she uh, reserved the right to seek a material witness warrant for a crime victim. Okay, so it'll yeah. continue to be an issue, perhaps, in the race. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I think that I think beyond just the the very specific issue of material witness warrants you know people look at the the idea of jailing a crime victim as kind of this tool that that's representative of a sort of win at all cost culture in the da's office and also the willingness to use incarceration as a, a solution or a, or a yeah as i said a tool um in order in order to to get prosecution and i think that that is something that that we're seeing certain segments of the public quite uncomfortable with. I think it's more broad than, than the specific issue. It's kind of a representative of a, of a general attitude that I think will be an issue. Right. About 12 days and counting until the election. Have a good week. All right. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>